Hello, 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 it's Rachel. And aloha, it's Gregory. And welcome back to Who Reads These Days. Today we're going to talk about July's People by Nadine Gordimer. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about something we haven't addressed yet. What which is? Mean? Which is? What? Roxanne Gay trashing on Lauren... What's her name? <laughs> oh my gosh, Lauren Euler. <laughs> Lauren Euler. Well, you really want to bring this to the public. Because we never talked about it after it happened. and It's been like three weeks. Yes, but... So you're harboring this. It slips in my mind. Okay, so you and also especially it? because we named our first episode after Lauren Euler. I think we should continue this narrative. That's true. Of entrenching ourselves in her life. Okay, so what happened? <laughs> so what happened is um, Roxanne Gay came to our school, which was... Virtually. Yes, virtually, for our annual Tolls lecture. Shout out to Hamilton College. and Shout out to our Tolls donors. True. And it wasn't just her. She came with Keith Lehman, and they just talked and had a fun time. But before that, they had a what they called a VIP kind of conversation with uh, people of color at Hamilton. And because I am Asian, I guess... <laughs> I am Asian. There's no I guess. I was able to attend the VIP lecture, which is just like six people, I think. And I asked her about Goodreads. I don't remember what I asked her. I said something about, like, what do you think about Goodreads or whatever, or something about her reviews on Goodreads and the way she interacts with it. And she was like, well, I don't read Goodreads reviews anymore because they make me mad. <laughs> and then I brought up Lauren Euler and just her view on Goodreads. And I can't remember what I told you, but something along the lines of like her building Lauren Euler's career because of, oh, because she said that Lauren Euler critiqued her book in an article. She critiqued Bad Feminist, mm -hmm. which came out, like, 2013, 2014. And then you said that she was saying that Lauren Euler gave a negative review of the book, which to me is the right take. And Better watch out. I'm sure she's going she to come for me. you, too. <laughs> but then you made it seem, or at least your kind of report of it, your report. Allegedly, you Allegedly, said. Allegedly, <laughs> yeah. Was that as you said, that Roxanne Gay was basically saying that she basically gave Lauren Euler the clout by having her kind of build her career off mm -hmm. of this essay, which was in the same publication that published multiple essays from Bad Feminist, which was being yeah. critiqued. And you, you characterized her as being very salty. She was so salty about it. Basically, she was like, yeah, like, Lauren Euler is writing off my you know, wave of fame, which was an interesting claim. And not only did she, did she say that, she also said, alluded to the fact that, like, she would still be here when Lauren, Lauren Euler would be. And that's a lot. It was. It's a lot to talk about. I find that so... I, it's not like I'm consistently thinking of this, but upon hearing it again, it's so weird to hear Roxanne Gay, who is, like, notably, like, a powerful individual... Like, both in influence as, like, kind of a Twitter character. She is, like, usually when she releases a book, it's going to get, like, a solid amount of sales. But also just, like, as an individual on, like, a personal level, like, her being, like, unapologetically, like, plus-sized and, like, being open about being bisexual um, and 
and being like loud and proud and black. And then to see her kind of like taking that platform, or I guess like platform if she's with six people on a Zoom call, but that she's belittling someone that it's Warren Oates' first novel. Like Warren Oilert has kind of accrued some status as like a pretty incisive critic of like predominantly like millennial fiction because she has very particular takes that do periodically like stray away from the overall mainstream narrative. But to release her debut novel and then to have Roxane Gay, who's released however many books, memoirs, essay collections, she's done fiction, short stories, to be like, Lauren Eller will not be remembered, but I will. And it's like, honey, she hasn't even, she just started and she's done well. And people in the Zoom chat were saying, I can't remember what they were saying, but not nice, very, not nice things. But they didn't know who Lauren Euler was, but they were just like, oh, like, who's this person? Ew. I just don't, I don't, I understand competition and I understand it, but it's like, especially if she's going to be the type where, as in, if Roxanne's going to be the type to talk about how, oh, I don't really want to read reviews anymore about my own work, it's like, you kind of have to be aware of you're putting yourself in a space or like if you know that you if she doesn't really like Lauren Euler's like critique of her it's like why would you talk about her anymore like obviously it's because you brought her up but like even then I feel like I love the tea <laughs> yes <laughs> no, you watched Reason, the other Lauren yeah Lauren Huff and that was even more egregious in my opinion because she was mad over a four-star review 4.5 but just almost like near perfection like five stars is the highest you can go and she's mad about 4.5 yeah she for everybody that doesn't know lauren hoff I, we don't really know that much about her she had like a profile on goodreads where it was like a little q a for her new book i think it's an essay collection i'm mm -hmm. not really sure um and she had a rant late at night on twitter regarding people that were reviewing her new book that were basically all handling it positively and like yeah sure it's like a four is not a five but did she like, like threaten one of them or something she didn't, she didn't threaten them but she was just like you're all kind of like dumb and like you should all like where are the teachers like giving you your homework and she started using like a bit crasser language and she got really intense about it and then people were kind of giving her backlash because there's a weird boundary being broken there of like the author consumer relationship um and she tried to blame it on her being high at like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or something. And it's just so dumb. I know. These authors in Goodreads really not, not <laughs> <laughs> clashing well. I just think it seems to be a situation here where it's just like you write what you want to write. And if you can't take the criticism, criticism in strong quotes, if you're getting positive reception from fans that are like, I will want to read more. It's not like a perfect book, but I'm intrigued just what you hope for. Like, if you really have that much of a response, like both Roxanne Gay and Lauren Euler or Lauren Hoff to these Goodreads users, like, then you should probably, like, breathe and step away and think, why am I so angry here? <laughs> Especially, I think, I, I get it more with Lauren Hoff because I think she, I think it's her debut. I think it's what we figured, but who knows. But for Roxanne Gay, it's weirder for me just because she's been working for so many years now. And, like, she announced at... Our Tolls lecture. I don't know if it's an announcement, but she's just talking about how she is going to have her own imprint. Yes, that's exciting news for her. Yeah, which is huge. And so that obviously takes, or not, it doesn't take anything, but having an imprint like that is predicated on her having status within the industry. 
And she has accrued the status rightfully. Like she's clearly hardworking. She's like consistently having an output and she's gotten a great response. So to see her kind of respond to negative critique in such a way is like a lot because she gets so much love. Yeah, I think it's funny that Lauren Huff, Lauren Euler, and Roxane Gay all have different negative <laughs> relations to Goodreads and all in a different way. It's just funny. I want to see like an author who's like espousing Goodreads and like telling everyone, this is great, this is awesome. I bet you would be Brandon Sanderson. Oop. No, I don't think so. I bet yes, he, he, Patrick... Don't Rothfuss. you dare say Patrick Rothfuss. He like reviews books on Goodreads, right? Oh, you're talking about... Okay, so they have to review. I think you just meant like they like read the content of the reviews. Oh. Patrick Rothfuss, does he still do it? Jeff Vandermeer writes a little bit too. I don't know. It's either Patrick Rothfuss or Rick Riordan. Very different vibes. Rick Riordan <laughs> does post on Goodreads. I don't know if he still does it, but you will periodically see like a big book. Like I think he has like the number one review on him, The Underground Railroad. I think I, I might just be making that up. Like I could just be lying to myself right Fake now. Fake news on our podcast. Yeah, we I, gotta. I know that he, fact he check does this. get. I mean, he must be one of the most followed authors. Yes. Honestly, do you know that for a fact? Yeah, I remember last time I checked a few years ago. He had like, he had some clout. <laughs> of course he does. But I think it's funny because my high school librarian, who's also an author, he only gives five stars it's rude. on Goodreads. He gives every book five stars, not because he feels that way, but because he has, like, certain relations with other authors on that space, and so he can't just be giving them, like, three stars or two stars. Would you be doing that? If you ever become an author and you know people within the industry, would you be honest? That's really hard. I feel like I would, but that might, but that might not be good for me because... I would probably destroy some friendly working relations with other people because people are sensitive. And if someone gave my book two stars, I would kind of be sensitive about that. Like, oh, they didn't like my book. I mean, it's just really hard that. because, yeah, because I feel like in a perfect world, you'd want to think of it as like, oh, well, like you just don't like what I'm producing. But if you're spending all those hours consistently, to like especially for, let's say, a novel or a short story collection, and that is so much diligence and you've probably gone through a ton of ideas before settling on this one and you you clearly must there's a certain level of egotism in writing or narcissism and that you think that you genuinely have a good enough idea to write a whole novel and you go through the whole process of writing it thinking or at least deceiving yourself enough to say I can get to like the 300 page count because my idea is that good and by the end you hope that you believe it <laughs> presumably and especially if you get published then Regardless of what you think about, oh, I want to edit this and that, you kind of have to live with this is the document, and I'm happy with it, and this is, like, a powerful statement from me. And to have someone as close to you say, no, <laughs> no, you didn't really succeed here. And post it on a public forum, too. Ugh, yeah. But brutal. at the same time, I guess it depends on, like, what are the qualities there. Like, I don't, I don't want people to just tell me, like, oh, you did a great job when you didn't do, when I did, if I didn't do Yeah, I mean, I think if it were me and I were publishing a book and it was bad, I would want people to tell that to me, but not post it in public, you know? If they want to tell me I'm fine, whatever. It's not great. I get it. Not a good book. And also, everyone, everyone's opinion is subjective. But I don't want them to be rating it on Goodreads and, like, lowering my ratio. <laughs> I mean, that's also a thing because that is not just, oh, yes, like, I'm cataloging, my friend is cataloging my book and saying it negatively. 
it does affect sales, yeah. like possibly, yeah. because yeah. especially if they are another author and they have their own success, it's like, oof, then that you would probably be a tastemaker for some people. So you're cutting possible readership. <laughs> it's like a very big dilemma because you don't want to lie. But so then do you, would you want them to like in person be like, sorry, I just, it wasn't really for me. And then yeah. post positively on Goodreads. Yeah. Let's say it was you who's reviewing my book and you hated it. You should just tell me. Just be like, hey, let's get coffee. Um, sorry to break it to you. Hated your book. But I get five stars in Goodreads. <laughs> well, that is the wound for you. Yeah. I mean, public perception, you know. <laughs> I always think about that with, like, people that are clearly friends or, like, work frequently or, like, do interviews together in the publishing industry. Like, I want to know what Garth Greenwell thinks of R.O. Kwan's, <laughs> no, like, novel. And I want to know, since they were both Booker Longlisted last year, like, do you see Pam Jong and Brandon Taylor actually like each other's work? Since they're friends and they went to the Iowa workshop Yeah, the together. Time. They must. Must they? Yeah, because if they didn't like each other's works, they probably wouldn't be friends. Because in that environment, like... I feel like if you don't like the other person's work, you wouldn't bother to form, like, a friendship or a close friendship with them. But your identity is not just your writing. I agree, but think about, like, your workshops and people who you're editing, and if you're reading work by someone and it's, like, not great work, it kind of demotivates you <laughs> from forming, like, a close friendship with them. That is an interesting kind of duality to writing that's, both like in progress and is finished where you simultaneously have to like depending on the book and the writing or whatever you want to differentiate the author from the work but simultaneously like that is a defining <laughs> like characteristic of the person because like regardless of the form and style or whatever like that is someone's like mindset like they put it in regardless of if like the character has nothing to do with them like there are truths in that and there are like taste differences that you can see and yeah I mean obviously it's just so odd yeah in a way because you're you are regardless of it being fictive you're seeing it in someone's head true so true that's such a natural segue to the book that we're reading <laughs> yeah honestly though yes because okay so we read for today I I it's guess. right in front of you. I know it's against me, but I'm, I was going to say that I was really angry about it last time. Oh, I yeah. Heard from us. Oh, yeah, you were throwing a tantrum. You were it. like, oh, no. Even though it was my book choice, I just, I wanted the piano teacher. But we it are reading, crazy. nope, <laughs> not present tense, in the past tense, we read for today Nadine Gordimer's July's People. So, I guess I'll just do a quick description. I will not look at the back of the book. I know that you were mad at me for trying to do that last time. It's I wasn't mad. I just gave you a challenge. Okay. But I okay. think it's better that way, too, because you're just... It's original. You're thinking of what stood out for you in that book. Yeah. So, Nadine Gordimer is a Nobel Prize-winning South African writer, daughter of Jewish immigrants to South Africa, and she wrote this novel in 1981, so five years before the end of Apartheid, and it is a speculative fiction novel in which Gordimer describes this white liberal family, the Smales, and their servant, July, or that's the name he uses for English speakers. And 
she imagines a situation in which black South Africans, aka the majority, would be able to snag actual like power, not just on a political level, but on an actual like arsenal weaponry level. So they can move away from just uprisings in South Africa for um, the end of past laws and the end of apartheid, but they can actually cause a full-on civil uprising. And it forces the Smales to try and run from their Johannesburg home because Johannesburg is up in flames. And the person that saves them is their servant, July, who chooses to take them with their backy, their truck, to his familial kind of village. She specifies that it's not a village because there aren't enough people, but it's like just his close... They call it a village, like, over and over. Okay. So his family's village, and so the smells are completely uprooted, and the whole novel is a... I was going to say long form. It obviously is long form, but it's a short novel. It's 160 pages, and it's discussing the constantly shifting power dynamic between the smells and July, and kind of the black and white South African divide. And it is a, like, seething indictment. Of South Africa. And I feel like that's probably like a pretty broad enough summary. Yeah, and it shifts points of view between the smells and July and then July's wife as well. And the yeah, and the various family members of the smells, or I guess just the just Bam, the dad, and Maureen, the mom. Not, I don't think the kids ever get no. a moment. So I love this book. I think it was so beautifully written. Yes. I remember just, like, at points when I'm reading it, and there was just these wonderful metaphors, and I was like, wow. <laughs> and, I, and it wasn't like, I already wrote, this, wrote about this in my Goodreads review, so it's not a surprise for you, but I feel like so much of beautiful prose I read is very, like, in your face, and just mm-hmm. very, like, I don't know how else to describe it. It's very obvious that it was very, like, manufactured to be, like, beautiful prose, and still beautiful, but this just felt very natural, and... It never felt like, I mean, beyond those like, few moments, it never felt like, oh, like, this, I'm stopping and being like, this is a beautifully written sentence, mm-hmm. but it just kind of flowed with it. It also was better than regular prose. <laughs> no, I feel like her prose has such a weird quality to me where one, like, certain long sentences sometimes have this, like, interesting, like, stilted quality that make you reread it in a way that at first was, like, somewhat off-putting, but then you sort of adapt to it, where, like, you might still have to pause, like, later in the novel, but it's just, like, a facet of how she does it, where she's, like, forcing you to reevaluate, like, sentence structure and, like, just general word placement. But also, her prose is so beautiful, but it also never seems, like, gratuitous. Yeah. And it's paired back while simultaneously being kind of relentlessly beautiful it's so hard to describe yes and i also think she somehow plays this double game where the prose style itself i think because of its beauty has a sort of tranquil quality Mm, but it's simultaneously so angry like there's clearly like a political rage yeah that is the underbelly of her writing style and she's able to do both at the same time and that like really was kind of mind-blowing to me as i was going along because you will have these turns of phrase where she treats everybody with a great level of humanity, but she's also so highly critical of, like, everybody's mindset. Yeah. And she's like, I see through you. And her, like, psychological insight, 
where she's working on the micro and macro level, like, at all times. I just can't with her. I have to read more of her. Like, I finished the book, yeah. and even in the middle of it, I'm, I've recently figured out that I can tell when I really enjoy, like, a writer while I'm in the middle of reading their book, when I'm, like, halfway through or however many pages in, and I start looking up, like, their name on YouTube, and I'm, like, looking up interviews, and I'm just trying to see what they talk about, and general things about them beyond the written text because I just need to know more. Interesting. I I do that periodically for certain books, but it has, like, nothing to do with whether I like it or not. Like, I've done that for Carson McCullers. I've done that for Kelly Link. I've had very different reactions to both. I just so feel, like, I feel like I only do it for certain authors because I either enjoy them in an interview space or I'm just so curious as to kind of who they must be because... I just can't imagine writing something this succinct and yet, like, so all-encompassing of this, like, hugely controversial and, like, still kind of echoing struggle. Yeah, it was very interesting to see the struggle or the shifting power dynamic between the Smales and July and his family because, I mean, you kind of know that it's going to shift because it says so in the back of the book. <laughs> it says, <laughs> wait, can I see? It says, what happens to Smales is. The smells is, yeah. Smales is. Into July, the shifts in character and relationships gives us an unforgettable look into the terrifying tacit understandings and misunderstandings between blacks and whites. And so you kind of know, okay, you know, they're being rescued. Something's going to shift between them. So that's happening. <laughs> that's what the book tells but you. But it's so interesting is seeing that happen because you know it's going to happen, yeah. but just like starting from just like small, small actions that July will do or just small like or just the way he will say a certain phrase or you know at one point he calls himself a boy he's like oh like i'm your boy yeah. and maureen's offended yeah and maureen never calls him a boy and so she's offended like why would you suddenly start calling yourself a boy but at the same time july is not being subservient in that um time because you know the the word boy obviously you're making that's a a way a derogatory word especially for um, white people using it to black people to make them subservient or to kind of emasculate them, etc. But in that moment, he's kind of using it in a powerful way because he's making her feel guilty. Also, at the same time, kind of just t twisting the way that words are used in that space. Because he does the same thing where he consistently refers to Bam as his master. Yeah. And so it also is interesting when Maureen hears it because she's like, well, I'm also your master. Like, it's not just Bam, but she also doesn't want him to say master yeah. because the fraught nature of that is intense. And so there's this decoding that um, Nadine Gordimer does consistently with the white liberal mindset in general that I was eating up. And I found it to be so prescient. Like, it's obviously of its time. Like, clearly that's a political conflict that she's focusing on. But it's, like, endlessly relevant. Um, what was the scene? There was a specific scene where they go to, they have to meet the tribal chief. Mm -hmm. And the tribal chief basically says, I don't really want the unification, or like, I don't want the end of apartheid. I don't want these tribes to be reunited against us. Like, I just want to protect my own tribe. And he like names like the Zulu, names a couple other ones. And he's like, that's why I want you, this like white man, bam, to show me how to shoot a gun, which is like a threatening concept. But him saying that, seems so counterintuitive to what you would expect from a black person in South Africa to desire. And 
Maureen and, the, and Bam are like, in their minds, what are we supposed to say here? Like, we have this narrative of what black South Africans want, and he's completely doing the opposite. And we also do have our own opinions on it as like, we do genuinely believe that like this is, what is happening is wrong. Like, they're not faking it, they're not performing it. But they're kind of confronted with, how do we handle this dynamic? Because can we say that this black man is wrong? When we like deliberately believe so. And July, obviously, is more so on the side of like changing the South African political grouping. So there's this multifariousness to like the black perspective, which is so frequently dropped because so many times when you're focusing on political conflict, every single different kind of uh, taxonomically kind of divided group is made monolithic in some way, like what is the black mindset? And they just, Maureen is constantly dealing with it. And even just her kind of coming from a, like a racist household or like some kind of racially tense household and then trying to think, I'm becoming more and more paranoid as, as everything is happening around me is like what kind of what Maureen is realizing, but it still happens. Like when she starts questioning that July is when he steals the gun immediately and she, when he's like at the car. Oh, he doesn't steal a gun. No, I know, but I'm saying this her paranoia. Yeah, yeah. And she's starting to constantly question him and it's like really making the relationship between her and July so fraught. Like the moment where she's, um, when they're kind of working around the car and it talks, there's like a really cool image to me where they can't see each other when they're arguing because she has her hand over her eyes to block the sun and he's on like the other side of the mm -hmm. car, like underneath. And they're fighting about, um, just kind of vernacular things like we talked about before. And then I forget what the argument specifically was, but she ends Was up it about like her working in the fields? Yes, her working in the fields. And then she gets a bit too aggressive and talks about, does your wife know about the town woman? Mm -hmm. Does your wife know about the city Ellen. woman? And he's just like silent. And he's just like, we're not doing this. And every time she would take those steps, I was like, I understand because this is so scary. Like clearly it's like, it's a lot to take, but you also have to play her cards right, and she was not doing it, but I, I was, like, understandable. There were two sections that I remember from one chapter early on that I was obsessed with. The first one is one line, or one sentence, where it says, Maureen saw the arrangement. She's, like, looking in one of the huts that's not occupied at the moment in the village, and she says, Maureen saw the arrangement as broken beads set aside from good ones. Choices made by someone momentarily absent. The dioramas of primitive civilizations in a natural history museum contrived to produce tableaus like that. That just, it's one of those moments where she has these metaphors that are so latent with like nuance. That was something I was trying to talk about earlier, or not trying to, I wasn't ever, but while I was talking <laughs> the pros earlier, that's something I thought of but didn't bring up. It's just the way she uses metaphors. The metaphors are so different and unexpected, and you're like, what? But then it makes a lot of sense, too, and it does explain the image or it makes it more clear in this very strange way. And so I, that's one thing I really loved about her prose were just those really weird metaphors that just worked. They're so specific, and yeah. yet they're so elucidating. Like, just the levels of that, because you're in Maureen's head and you're thinking she's now seeing this world that she has kind of offered July that she's like, I would like to go see like where your wife lives. Like, I'd like to meet your wife. And he kind of was always like, no. And then she was never really actually mad about it. And to go into a hut and for her to kind of have that immediate connection of like, where have I seen this before? I've seen it in like white recreations of it. 
which is like a lifeless husk of what this setting actually looks like. And just also the way that that, like, also talks about how we discuss those dioramas, the quote-unquote primitiveness of that kind of living space, and yet, obviously, we're working with, like, July's family, which are clearly dealing with poverty and, like, working-class realities and extreme, extreme discrimination that is forcing them into these kind of, this job instability, and, like, during apartheid, like, the only black option for work would be, like, being a maid, like, being a butler, doing these things, and then trying to get the money back to your family, and, like, why are they primitive then? Like, obviously, there would probably be, like, a certain expansion of their lifestyle if they were able to have more money than they do. Like, it's not like this is just, like, entirely a thing of, we keep huts because it's traditional. I'm not saying they'd want them to have, like, houses, like, in the States, <laughs> but they'd probably live a bit more comfortably in how they're living. Well, yeah, and July tells Martha yeah. that they will go over to the Smells' houses, houses, house, <laughs> And live there, remember? Yeah. It's like, we'll live there. We'll be, we'll be there. Because Martha's like, never been there either. And she's like, would I even fit there? How's that going to go? There's one other thing, which is a bit longer, which I loved. It gave me Susan Sontag energy for, like, her essay on photography or, like, on regarding the pain of others, where, you'll remember this, where it's a quick flashback that she has, Maureen, to Lydia, the um, black South African woman that she would see when she got off of the bus. Um, and who would carry her bag sometimes and they had like a little mutual friendship and it was very cute and it says one afternoon a photographer mm. was it cute though? well this is the question this <laughs> yeah. is the question yeah. on the surface it is but this is it was this is what I was like yeah. was, I was already thinking it but then she does this and I was astounded by its power where it says well the thing is sorry no, not to oh interrupt but I feel like obviously we're, we were thinking about it when we were reading but we were only thinking about because I think Gordimer was subtly pointing yeah. that out because she had me like oh like Lydia was carrying the bag on her head and yeah I think she was showing us that or foreshadowing it right before the conclusion of yeah. that chapter because then the conclusion is one afternoon a photographer took a picture of Maureen and Lydia they saw him dancing about on bent legs to get them in focus just there at the shops while they crossed the road when he had taken his photographs he came up and asked them if they minded Lydia was in command, which I think is really important there. She put her hands on her hips without disturbing the balance of the burden on her head. But you must send us a picture. We'd like to have the picture. He promised and aimed at them again as they went on their way. He had not written down the address, number 20, married quarters, western areas, gold mines, so how could they get the photograph? Years later, someone showed it to Maureen Smales in a life coffee table book about the country and its policies. White heron folk attitudes and lifestyles. The marvelous photograph of the white schoolgirl and the black woman with the girl's school case on her head. Why had Lydia carried her case? Did the photographer know what he saw when they crossed the road like that together? Did the book, placing the pair in its context, give the reason she and Lydia, in their affection and ignorance, didn't know? I was, it made me pause. I was like so obsessed with this, like two paragraphs. Um, because it, has like so many layers going on because you're like how 
how do Lydia and Maureen even perceive their relationship? Mm -hmm. Like, it is friendly, but there's obviously subtext. But how are they perceiving the subtext? But they even perceive it until, like, they saw the... Or until Lydia saw it. Or did Maureen see Maureen. it? Until Maureen saw yeah. the photo. And she, was, and she it allowed her to reflect. Yeah. Because she's able to see... Take a step back and see it from literally another person's point of view. Through the lens of the photographer. The literal lens of the photographer. <laughs> And it's like, oh, that's what that looks like to other people. But also how it fits into this wider narrative. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that it's also placed into particularly, like, a life coffee table book. So you have one of, like, the top publications in the world putting this in at some point into their magazine catalog and then having it later in a coffee table text. It just, like, the word heron folk, so you have, like, the Nazi connection there of, like, kind of white supremacy and the belittling of someone like Lydia, obviously, for her blackness. And so it's this interplay between self-perception as well as, like, kind of having a quote-unquote objective perspective. Like, you see yourself in an image in this way, and you have to reconsider what does that really mean. But then it's also, like, the image that is supposedly objective is subjective. It's set up, like, the photographer clearly took it, for a specific purpose. And, and it that's fits what Ms. Susan narrative. Sontag says. Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> it's like her whole discussion and just who, who is viewing the image. Mm -hmm. The fact that also Maureen finds out about it because of a friend who realizes that it's her. So this means like one wider readership than also like, I don't know, it just, it's so, it's like not that much going on and it's a very small moment and yet it's so chock full of like cultural criticism as well as criticism of like how do we grow up and how do we internalize these value sets and like what we does it take like an actual objectivizing of some part of our kind of reality to realize like we are kind of in the wrong in some way or we are falling prey to the kind of racial hierarchy that we live within right because you didn't even realize until like you said like later on and so so we don't know i guess i can't I think Maureen is probably my favorite character. I mean, we probably get the most time with her out of any of the characters Maureen remember. But um, I love her downward spiral. And I wasn't sure about the ending when I first, like, finished. She ran. She ran. She, she ran. ran. And I'm obsessed with it. Because I think it's a subversion or inversion of how, we, how people would perceive, like, white south africans versus black south africans why and that she like fully achieves like a quote-unquote like primitive primal state like she is willing to like throw away her family and everything of her life in order to achieve some level of security that is most likely attached to whiteness because she just wants to get out like she is so scared and paranoid by the end of this novel does she throw away her family yes because you hear the specific yeah she's running away from everything and it specifies in the description where it says, she's running to the river and she hears them, the man's voice and the voice of children speaking English somewhere to the left. But she makes it straight for the ford and pulling off her shoes balances and jumps from boulder to boulder. Like, she doesn't even take in, like, what they're saying. She's not even paying attention to them anymore. She just wants to get to the helicopter zone. True. And, like, the, that specific phrase saying, like, someone, or these children speaking English, instead of saying, like, her children speaking English, or the specific mention of just English... Like, the way it's phrased, it's very, like, distanced from her and yeah. her reality. And so I was just, like, she has gone through it. And, like, a certain level of stress that she has never been, ha never had to deal with. But obviously black South Africans have to deal with 
extreme stress and all of these kind of social stratas. Oh my gosh, and that reminds me, I can't, I don't know where that quote would be, but like, there's one quote that talks about, um, like, you know, her and her husband are speaking, they're like, oh, like, you know, American citizens are getting rescued, European citizens are getting rescued, and they don't talk about how they are not American or European citizens, but they say, well, if, I don't know what the exact phrase was, but if black people are seen as one group, then maybe, like, white people will be seen as one group, and they will be rescued, even though they aren't, like, citizens. Yes. No, because it also is that kind of interesting thing of BAM wants to leave, like, immediately upon any crisis. But Marina's the one who's, like... Where? How? Where? How? And this is, like, this is my home. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to leave. Like, this is what I know. Like, this is where I'm from. And... Which makes sense. Like, that's not a crazy thing to say. But it's also just, like, brutal. I mean, I also just think about how intense the stakes are. I mean, you get, like, various snippets from, like, the radio periodically about, like, what's going on in the world. But just the image of, like, black South Africans actually achieving, like, the arsenal necessary to, like, actually enact, like, plane bombings. And not just, like, bombing from the plane, but, like, shooting them out of the sky... It's like, that is harrowing. And it's not... And uh, True, and they had a discussion about that where I think July or, or someone... So I was talking to someone where they were like, how are they shooting <laughs> these planes out of the sky? And he was like, well, we have that equipment now. Yeah, I think that was his wife. Was yeah. His wife or his mom. Yeah, because they were very incredulous about it. They were like, how is this happening? Because it's so insane. And I just... It's just so wild. I just... I think it's really, yeah, I think that toss-up of, it's like, it is a political novel. I think political novels are a struggle to write with, like, a certain level of Every novel is political. I understand that, but, like, when you're specifically writing a novel that's, like, trying to be political, like, you have a message in mind, or, like, not necessarily a message, but your goal is to analyze the kind of socio-political state in which you're, like, in, in some way, or, like... I guess it doesn't have to be what you're in, but something about the world at large. So her dealing with apartheid and race relations, um, especially as she is, or sorry, she was, she has passed. I think she was like 90. One of my professors asked me once, she was like, is there any novel that is not about class? And I was like, true. Is that true? Yeah, because I was thinking, I was like, hmm, like fairy tales? And she was think about it. Think about Hansel and Gretel. And I was like, oh, true. Is Romeo and Juliet about class? Yeah, every novel. What every Romeo and Juliet is about class? I would say... They're both high. They're both upper exactly, class. Exactly, they're both upper class. Which doesn't mean it's about class. The class warfare between... Not the warfare, class warfare. They're in the same class. Between Romeo and Juliet, there is this idea that they cannot marry each other. And that's not a consideration that they would have if they were lower class. Because there wouldn't be no enmity between the two aristocratic sort of families. But they're still aristocratic. It's not a class conflict. It is rooted in the issues of these higher class families. But that could be anything then. You could literally have like two working class families that hate each other. You could say, well, I guess it's about class because they're both within the same class and they're fighting. I mean, well, I, I mean, I think there is a truth to it where I think so much of 
I mean, it's one of those things where, like, race, gender, class, I think these things naturally come up as points of concern. I guess it depends on, like, are we, are we talking about novels that are, like, strictly about these issues, or, like, it's usually going to be subtext? I could say that Gloria, subtext. Like, Gloria Naylor's novel, like, 1996, is not about class. I could say that very confidently. Subtext, because race. for Hansel and Gretel, it's not at first an obvious <laughs> discussion class. of class. Let me finish this, this well, no, I'm just saying narrative. Other for fairy tales. And because I braced that up, I was like, oh, fairy tales don't seem to be about class. And then she raised up Hansel and Gretel. And, or did I? Who knows? I don't know. And she was like, well, think about the father. I hadn't read Hansel and Gretel a long time, but the father, like, goes out and works or whatever, right? And they're left at home. And that is a class issue of, of the two kids being left at home to hear themselves while the parent goes out to work. See, but I just don't, I don't count that. That takes so much work to get to that point, and it is not the focal <laughs> point of the story. Because I think that's what got dig deep. Got to analyze. Yeah, but that doesn't work because I think if lens. you're going to say every novel is about class, then I think every novel should be about class. The Hansel Crow is not about class. The subtext you could put in the work. Uh, got to put your Marxist cap on. Is the yellow wallpaper about class? No, it's about womanhood. It's about like how we perceive mental health in women. And then you yeah. my paper called. Um, the yellow wallpaper through a through a Marxist analysis and discuss that. See, but even then, it's like, what are we what are we doing here? You know. <laughs> because lower class people wouldn't have. Is Wittgenstein's mistress about class? Why, why don't we tackle one thing before we move on? Boom, boom, boom to the I next. I don't think the broom of the system is about class. For the yellow wallpaper. The lower class people wouldn't have that same is real life about class? leisure time to shut themselves up in like a house far away and I'm just sit this. there. This takes they, they gotta here. keep on working. They have oh jobs gosh. to do. They can't just like sit in a house. This isn't. It's not. I will say this is not a. It's not a tight claim. Let's put it that way. But what else? What was I going to say? So would you recommend this book to people? I would wholeheartedly recommend this book to people. I think everybody should read it. Honestly. That's a different question. Well, I, I think that's like a great <laughs> recommendation. But I was thinking earlier, I was thinking, I do think everyone should read it, but would I recommend it to everyone? No. Well, sure. Like, I don't think everybody would be into it, but I'm saying that as like a hyperbolic statement as to how I feel like I would like more people to have a copy of it and would try and read it. Because I think it's really amazing. Like, I... I finished the book, and I was like, oh, I really need to read more books from her. Like, I need to read Berger's Daughter. I need to pick up maybe her short fiction or her essays or whatever. Or her, um, she won the Booker Prize one year. I think it was The Conservationist. Like, I just want to read those books, and she wrote for ages. She, as I have told you before, like, she published her first story when she was 15 in a magazine. And then she was, I think her last novel was in, like, 2012. So, like, I think a year or two before she died. So she had, like, a 60, 70-year-long career. So, like, there's much content. And I want to get into it. Because it was so good. And yet you threw a tantrum. <laughs> yes, because I really want to read Alfred Yelenek, and I still do. So I hope you're going to pick that one up. But I just think, like, she... I also think embodies, as a Nobel Prize winner, like, 
one why like the prize is interesting like as an American reader which like obviously how American centric can I be but just the idea of like exposing having a list of authors that are like global in scale and like Alfred Nobel's whole thing or Nobel his whole thing was um talking about writers who are trying to make the world like a better place in some way through his discourse or like through their novels and like trying to open and that's VS Nepal Yes, he's literally excavating the post-colonial struggle. And he's one of the preeminent people to do that, which is, is quite necessary. Making the world a better place. Well, I'm. that's me expanding upon it too much. I can, if you really want to get specific in this, let's see what the statement is. Also, I want to Let's see, the misogyny in both of House for Mr. Biswas and so Miguel Street is they said that very she, prevalent. She was recognized as a writer, quote, who through her magnificent epic writing has, in the words of Alfred Nobel, been a very great benefit to humanity. Which, what a glowing review. It, okay, so I want to change it, but it says, um, the prize is meant in the field of literature for work for for whoever produced the most outstanding work in an idealistic direction so whatever that means um so there's like a political bent to it currently held by louise gluck true okay i think we should choose our next book okay that's on you i'm getting sound from everywhere closing my eyes this is a fair judgment 50 50 you know what greg wants It's giving me anxiety. I have no investment. I really don't care. I have no please. The piano teacher. <gasps> oh my gosh, it's <laughs> happening. Wow. This is probably my most anticipated book of the set. True, no more. I'm getting my coffee. Okay, oh my gosh. So, this is another Nobel winner. And they always plaster it on the covers. And this is, I don't know how she old she is. I feel like she's, oh, she's older than I thought, born in 1946. An Austrian author who is quite controversial in her content, like very provocative. And I also know, fun fact, that um, I believe she is the German translator for Thomas Pynchon's work, or at least for Gravity's Rainbow, which I find humorous and fun. And what does it say? So the Swedish Academy always gives a quote for Nobel winners, like a little catchy tagline. And it says here the one they gave her was her musical flow, or the Swedish Academy praised, quote, her musical flow of voices and counter voices in novels and plays that with extraordinary linguistic zeal reveal the absurdity of society's cliches and their subjugating power, end quote. This is very intense, but this book will be intense because I've seen the movie, which we should watch. It's a good movie by Michael Haneke, but it's all about a piano teacher, who would have thought, who works at like a famous conservatory and she lives with her like possessive mom and she's like in her late thirties and she's bored and I believe she starts having an affair with her 17-year-old student. And it's odd. Like, there is 
a profound unwellness in this like character's head. Like it's quite harrowing on a certain level. I remember there's some like probably some like sadomasochistic considerations in like an unerotic way. My dark Vanessa on steroids. Oh, it's and probably gonna be worse. My favorite thing is that this book is so controversial, even for like post Nobel Prize win, where people think that Alfred Yelinek shouldn't even have won. They're like, she's awful, she's horrific, she's all this and that. Um, I mean, I'll, every every Nobel, not every, but many Nobel Prize winners, there are people who are like, oh, they shouldn't have won. Like, with... With Louise Gluck. Yes, but before her, with... Hateful. Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan. Well, that's a different beast. That's, that, like, we don't need to talk about that. That starts a whole other discussion. Also with... Gao Xingjian. From whom? A lot of Chinese people think that he shouldn't have won. Yeah. I'm not saying I agree with that. And with Mo Yan. You think that he shouldn't I'm joking, I'm joking. I need to read other stuff I hated. Yeah, well, you have to read Red Sorghum before you say anything. Well, you need to know other good books. It's just Red Sorghum. Red Sorghum is his big one. Well... I it's mean, yeah, Life and Death are wearing me out. It was not it. It's still my bookshelf from last semester, which makes me kind of sad, I think. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's down mm-hmm. there. But, so just, I know I have another line with Susan Sontag quote, like about um, San Shui, where she's like, this, she is the one. If there is to ever be a Nobel laureate in China, it will be San Shui. Little did she know. I guess she did know. She didn't die before the other two were nominated. Or one, but whatever. I just, yeah, I'm really curious. It's like a, it looks thicker than it is. It's, I think, like 270 something pages. For your copy. We have the same copy. Do I? Yeah. I don't know. I, I saw it. Okay. <laughs> you just don't have the dust jacket. And the font isn't small. Why is it so thick looking? Nice paper quality. It's not that thick. The paper is thick. Okay, this is not a nice thing to listen to on a on a, on a radio wave. <laughs> okay, I have one last question for you. Okay. What is one book that you read this semester that you wished we could have discussed together for the, this podcast? Hmm. I had to read it during the semester. No, like, like you you already read it, and you think it's, like, so, like, really In great to discuss. Life? No, like, this semester. You read it this semester, and you wish we read it together so we could discuss it. Because mm-hmm. I have my answer. Of what you've read? Mm-hmm. Personally? Mm-hmm. Not personally. You can be for class. You can be for yourself. I will not be bringing class literature to this room. <laughs> Are you going to? Yeah. I would recommend, not recommend, but... I would, I wish we would have discussed, not actually wish, but like for this, for this prompt, for this question, I would say Sport of King by C. Morgan, <laughs> just because I think it would have been really interesting to discuss together. I have not read it, so I have no thoughts. I think it's, I think especially it would have been interesting to discuss, not just because I liked it as a novel, but because... I think 
it is attempting to go for that like great American novel moniker and it really it, like tackles all of American history not all of it but you know the, the span of American history from like the beginning when manifest destiny and you know establishing Kentucky's estate all the way to like present day like almost 2012 I think um you know rights from both the white perspective and the black perspective and obviously has those racial conflicts but also class conflicts um and uses this really interesting symbolism of horse racing and horse breeding um as kind of the relations between black people and white people also the idea of using evolution long history of using evolution um darwinist evolution as a way to kind of explain the quote-unquote inferior genes of black people i do think it's pretty heavy-handed in some parts and i was for a class we had to read new yorker review on this book and near the end of the book the reviewer who does like the book does say that there there are a lot of shortcomings one of which is it's heavy-handedness and i felt so vindicated i was like i knew i knew i was right but also, yeah, I mean, I think it, it tries to do so much, which is why I forgive it, because it's very ambitious, but it's very messy. But it is very, written very, very beautifully. It's probably one of the most beautiful novels I've, I've read this semester. Or this year. No, that's different. This semester, this year, it's the same. This academic year. <laughs> I love that. I'm trying to think. I guess I would go between... Um, like, the only two novels I've given, like, five stars on Goodreads and... A while so it would be like Lauren Euler's fake accounts I think would have been really interesting to read together because I think there's a lot going on and it's working on a lot of levels that are very current but they're not bogged down in the way I think like a novel like um I forget the, <laughs> the name of it right now but the new Patricia Lockwood book um pre-study no that's the memoir that's older it's a... Yeah, I know you're talking No one's talking here anymore? Oh. No. I'm forgetting right now. I can envision the cover, but it's just so... The whole first half is, like, written in, like, a, tw- a faux Twitter style. And I totally understand what it's trying to do, but it just, like, did not connect to me. And I just... I think it, like, is trying to do all this stuff about, like, online spaces that are better suited to on online spaces rather than try and capture it in a novel. Or I guess you could do it in a different way, but it just wasn't that. But I think what Lauren Euler does is that she's focused on all the parts of, like, online culture that seep into, like, the quote-unquote real world, because the online world is the real world at this point. Like, we're living what people say is a double life, but it's all the same. Like, we're moving between different modes of communication. And just how much are we performing? Like, what is our level of performance generally? Which is always, like, a constant question. But she, like, is funny and, like, somewhat depressing, but her humor, like, allows it to, like, go through, and her narrator is like a mess and like a liar and like terrible in so many ways but it's like so entertaining like it was just one of the like most fun reading experiences i've had in a while and i think you probably agree or if you don't because it's a pretty polarizing read seemingly then it would have interesting conversation and then um a confederacy of dunces i would probably pick for most recent just because i don't think i for probably the first third or first half I was consistently interested, but I was never thinking, like, oh, like, this is, like, so good. Like, this is really 
next level stuff, even though I probably was. I think I was just like averse to it because didn't, it didn't seem like the type of book that I would like, which is on me and my judgments. But it was just like funny and it was so... I love when people can make fun of people, but to in a manner that isn't just dehumanizing and like awful. Like he's so mean to some of these people, like the narrator and like John Kennedy Tool, or like Ignatius talking to other people and calling them like abortions and all of these things. Um, but it's always like that little nuance of adding humanization to these people where like you have them as a butt of a joke or you start off in that way and you develop this character that like on the surface seems like this like not cardboard character but there's something two-dimensional like they're playing a slapstick role for the sake of the joke rather than being human beings and I can't really say that like he's writing human beings because they're so hyperbolized and it's almost like expressionistic in how like crazy <laughs> their personalities are but you get to the point where it is still funny but it's so tragicomic and you find like these connections to these characters within yourself where you're like what am I thinking about my own self-perception like am I this bad like what <laughs> am I sharing these traits and it's like constantly political and he's making fun of academia and he's making fun of like general culture but also making fun of detractors of culture and it's like a love letter to New Orleans and like the zaniness of New Orleans culture and it has like the weirdest depiction of gay people and it's like all these strange little things that are amalgamated into this like I was gonna say succinct but it's a 400 page novel so I can't really call that succinct. And I think it would be really interesting to see if, one, you'd even find it funny, because I always find comedy in books to be one of those toss-ups that I'd be curious about, and also just your general thoughts on it. Because there are so many layers that I probably missed because of my preconceptions of it. And also just, like, layers miss in, in general yeah. when you're reading. Not you, but, like, no, just people. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. No, totally. It's definitely, like, a book that I think would probably benefit from a rereading. Yeah, one of the professors who teaches um, Paradise Lost at Hamilton uh, told one of my friends that literally every time she teaches Paradise Lost, which is, I think, every year, she finds something new in it, which is crazy. I mean, it's why it's so good, right? Yeah. I mean... People, that actually begs a quick question of, like, is is that what makes it good? Is that what makes something, like, an, an, an incredible piece of writing if, like, you can read it reread it like basically endlessly i think it's one finding different things to latch onto in each reread i feel like that's probably one factor in it do you think if you are great books only books that are great on reread or multiple readings like no if, or like if i let's say i read i don't know whatever book let's say i read new grub street and i'm obsessed with it for the first read but then i go for a second time like i find this so bland but like other people still like it i guess or whatever but who cares let's say i just i don't like it on second read is that inherently a bad book like was it just wrong the first time well that also depends like did you read it when you were like younger and then you changed your opinion because you read more books i don't know i think it depends on like both how much time has passed between you like you reading it slash how much you've changed between the periods that you've read it in but also yeah, I might mean, think sometimes you just might have a better response to a book because of a certain like period in your life. But I don't know. I think I think a lot of what counts for a great book might have to do with rereadability, but I don't think that's everything or it shouldn't be everything. 
Yeah, because I mean, it's also just, I don't know. If you pick something that isn't, let's say, like, high literature, strong quotes on that, because what does that really even mean? Like, what even is literary fiction? But if you pick, I don't know, what's something, like, pulpy that, like, people would consider to have, like, no literary value in quotes? Like, I don't know. A Tom Clancy novel? Or let's say James Patterson, because he doesn't even write them anymore. <laughs> he gives them, like, he writes some of it and gives, like, intro ideas. And then... You read that once, you're like, that was so much fun. And then you read it again, and you say that was still so much fun. The is one that, with is, Bill Clinton, the one that he co-authored with Bill Clinton. Isn't he also doing one? The, pres- one. the president is down? Is there's another one. Another one together? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where it's so hard, because, like, what is a great book? It's, like, even rereadability as a metric is a mess in some way. Because, like, I mean, it's always going to be a mess, though. I don't know. I do think July's People is a great book, though. True, and also, is it, like, you enjoying it on reread, or is it just you excavating, like, new things on reread? Because you can still excavate new things without enjoying it. That's awful, though. But at the same time, I do feel like it's often parallel. Like, if you're excavating new information, finding new tidbits, that often makes you enjoy the book more. Like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. I yeah, feel like that's so how I was for Absalom, Absalom, which... Did you reread it? No, but, like, I reread many sections for it when I had to write, like, an essay about it for my class. Yeah. And just, like, rereading page, like, certain chapters over and over. I'm like, oh, that was interesting. But... I mean, I always think about that for, like, the really big books. Where it's, like, I don't know. Like, you're reading, like, a War and Peace again... Yeah. Like, you've already forgotten most of the details on it, like, basically immediately after you're done with the book. Or if we were reading, like, Ulysses again, like, I know I would not enjoy Ulysses on reread and that I would not, I'd still have the same experience of being frustrated and not knowing, like, what's going on half the time, but at the same time, obviously, I would be gaining new material <laughs> from rereading it, um, both material that I've forgotten and material that I may, like, notice again on a second read. So, I mean, maybe that would increase my enjoyment of the book. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we won't. Maybe I won't reread it. I probably won't reread it. So. Yeah, we don't have time, so we won't really, like, answer the question. But I'm also curious about kind of how that differs between um, fiction and poetry. Oh, true. On reread. Because I feel like poems are so tonal, and I feel like they're also even more time-specific. Um, well, poems are, like, I don't know. I think a good poem is a poem that sticks with me throughout my entire life short life <laughs> and like one that I can think about and just like relish like rereading and it's kind of like comforting or like home like rereading it again you're like oh I remember this like you remember rereading it the first time or reading it the first time and then on reread you're like oh like I remember this and then just enjoying that experience I think a poem is more like an experience than a novel yeah interesting and with that <laughs> <laughs> We're out of time. So you must bid you adieu. <laughs> Adios. Well, I love that. Oh my god. Yes, so we'll be reading The Piano Teacher by Elfrida Yelenek within two weeks. And hopefully you have a wonderful evening. The beginning of May. <laughs> Adios.